Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, It is now my distinct honor and privilege uh, to introduce for some brief introductory remarks the Honorable Ed Meese. Although perhaps best known as our 75th Attorney General uh, during President Reagan's second term, General Meese's relationship with Ronald Reagan began long before that. After graduating from Berkeley Law School, General Meese accepted a position in the district attorney's office in Alameda County, that's basically Oakland. Uh, He quickly attracted the attention of some state legislators who introduced him to Governor-elect Reagan in 1967. Knowing a good thing when he saw it, Governor Reagan asked General Meese to join his staff, where eventually he became Governor Reagan's chief of staff and a close political advisor. After a brief stint in the aerospace industry and then as a law professor, he rejoined Ronald Reagan when he decided to run for president. General Meese ran the day-to-day operations of President Reagan's campaign and then served as the head of his transition team. After that, he served as a counselor to the president, effectively uh, President Reagan's chief policy advisor during President Reagan's first term before being named attorney general. It was as Attorney General that General Meese sparked an ongoing discussion about originalism, which is the topic for this afternoon's debate. After Reagan left office, General Meese joined the Heritage Foundation as the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Fellow and Chairman of the Legal Center that now bears his name until his retirement, my wife would refer to this as a failed retirement, (laughs) in 2013. He is currently the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Fellow Emeritus here at Heritage. Please join me in welcoming Ed Meese. Thank you, John, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I certainly want to echo John's uh, words to you this morning when he welcomed all of you on behalf of Heritage. And I also want to express uh, my appreciation, along as John did also, for the outstanding appellate judges, the law professors, and the former clerks who have made this what I have already seen to be a valuable experience in professional legal education. So it's good to have all of you with us tonight. Uh, As you know, the topic of tonight's debate is on the subject of originalism as the legitimate means of interpretation of the United States Constitution. Originalism really goes back to the origins of our nation and the concept of our founding fathers that our country is based upon a government of laws and not of men. Over more than two centuries ago, Thomas Paine proclaimed that America has no monarch. He said, here the law is, uh, is the, uh, the, here the law is king, and this emphasis on the role of law is central to the topic of originalism. Originalists believe that the written constitution is our fundamental law and that it binds all of us, even Supreme Court justices. And originalism means interpreting and applying the constitution as it actually reads and not altering it by substituting a judge's personal ideas of political biases or policy preferences. For much of the 20th century, Uh, not much attention was paid to originalism. To Woodrow Wilson and his so-called progressives, the Constitution was an impediment to what they wanted to do as the Plato-like experts and technocrats in reshaping the nation in a way that they decided was best for the people. For other politicians in succeeding decades of that century, the Constitution and its original meaning were essentially ignored. But in the last quarter 
of the 20th century, things began to change. In 1971, Robert Bork laid the foundation for originalism in an Indiana Law Journal article. In effect, this made him the intellectual godfather of originalism. His subsequent speeches and writings continued to definitively promulgate this concept of original meaning of the Constitution. In 1981, Ronald Reagan was elected president. The role of the judiciary and the proper interpretation of the Constitution was very important to him. He had suffered under some false interpretations of the Constitution by judges when he was governor of California and where their mis uh, distortions of the Constitution interfered with the proper things that he was trying to do in that state, particularly in the area of welfare reform. His ideas of originalism, and Ronald Reagan actually was very well steeped in the founding, the history of the founding, and the ideas of the founders. Uh, his ideas on this subject were best expressed in the speech that he gave on the, at the installation of Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Antonin Scalia in 1986. He said the founders created a judiciary that would be independent and strong, but one whose power would also, they believe, be confined within the boundaries of a written constitution and the law. He went on to say Hamilton and Jefferson, for example, disagreed on most of the great issues of their day, just as many have disagreed in ours. And yet for all their differences, he said, they both agreed, as should be, on the importance of judicial restraint. Our peculiar security, Jefferson had warned, is in the possession of a written constitution. And he went on to say, Hamilton, Jefferson, and all the founding fathers recognized that the constitution is the supreme and ultimate expression of the will of the American people. They saw that no one in office could remain above it if freedom were to survive through the ages. They understood that, in the words of James Madison, if the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation is not the guide to expounding it, there can be no security for a faithful exercise of its powers. Well, much has happened in the past three decades since Ronald Reagan was elected. It started slowly and has continued. It was accurately portrayed as a historical phenomenon by Justice Antonin Scalia, when he wrote the foreword to a book on originalism in 2007. And he said, 20 years ago, when I joined the Supreme Court, I was the only originalist among its numbers. By and large, counsel did not know I was an originalist, <laughs> and indeed probably did not know what an originalist was. In their briefs and oral arguments on constitutional issues, they generally discussed only the most recent Supreme Court cases and policy considerations, not a word about what the text was thought to mean when the people adopted it. But by 2007, things even then had begun to change. In the courts and also in the law schools. As to the law schools, he also wrote in this book, originalism has started to gain a foothold. He went on, I used to be able to say with only mild hyperbole that one could fire a cannon loaded with grape shot in the faculty lounge of any major law school in the country and not strike an originalist. <laughs> that is no longer possible. This was now uh, 20 years, or 2007, uh, some 15 or more years ago. He said, that is no longer possible even then. Even Harvard Law School, he said, the flagship of legal education, and then he made a parenthesis, I can say that because I'm a Harvard Law School graduate, has by my count no less than three originalists on its faculty. 20 years ago, there were none. Well, a lot of other things have happened. As uh, John mentioned, I was privileged to make a speech to the ABA, basically expressing the thoughts that Ronald Reagan himself uh, had, and which uh, what was one of the main points that he exemplified in the appointment of the judges uh, that he nominated and ultimately appointed. Uh, one of the good things about my speech to the ABA was that Justice Brennan, who was not a constitutionalist, not an originalist as far as the Constitution was concerned, took exception to it. Now, if he had not, 
that speech probably would have laid on some shelf someplace and never been heard from again. But instead, Justice Brennan made the mistake of challenging the speech in a speech at Georgetown Law uh, Center uh, a few months later. And so then we had a fight. We had a battle, and the Federalist Society was able to uh, work, uh, which had just recently been established, have been uh, uh, organized. Uh, they, they put out these two speeches side by side in a booklet, and pretty soon there were ideas flowing back and forth, and there was really quite a, a considerable debate began in legal and academic circles. And then, and that is why, uh, uh, in a sense, what has happened since uh, uh, the, the time that uh, John mentioned in 1985, uh, that w the legal profession, the courts, the law schools carried out uh, the prediction of Justice Scalia, uh, then Professor Scalia, when he wrote that there is reason to be hopeful. He said, the upcoming generation of judges and lawyers, which includes all of you, uh, will have been exposed to originalist thinking far more than was his own. If not through their law professors, then through lectures and symposia sponsored by the Federalist Society. And I know that's uh, not a new concept to most of you here. And he went on to say, if neither of those and at least through the reading of originalist Supreme Court opinions and dissents. Then he concluded by saying, it is the very premise of our free system that in a fair and equal competition of ideas, the truth will prevail. And that paves the way for tonight's debate. Thank you. So the debate about the merits and demerits of originalism as a theory of constitutional interpretation and its alternatives uh, rages on. And we have two outstanding people here this evening uh, to present the alternative perspectives. So the first person we're going to hear from is John Eastman. John is the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service and the former dean of Chapman University's Dale E. Fowler School of Law, where he specializes in constitutional law, legal history, and property. He also leads the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, a public interest law firm affiliated with the Claremont Institute, which he founded in 1999. He has a PhD from the Claremont Graduate School and his JD from the University of Chicago Law School. Prior to joining Chapman, he clerked for Michael Ludig on the Fourth Circuit and for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. He also did a brief stint at the law firm of Kirkland and Ellis. John has testified several times before Congress, is a frequent media commentator, and has published many articles on a variety of topics in prestigious law reviews and other academic journals. Then we will hear from Michael Gerhardt. He is the Samuel Ash Distinguished Professor in Constitutional Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law and has advised members of Congress on a range of constitutional issues. He's an expert on the federal impeachment process. In 1992, he served as a special consultant to the National Commission on Judicial Discipline and Removal. In 1998, he testified before the House Judiciary Committee's special hearing on the background and history of the impeachment process held in conjunction with the, the House's consideration of filing articles of impeachment against President Clinton. In 2009, he testified before a select committee of the House of Representatives on the question of whether a federal judge may be impeached and removed from office for misconduct committed prior to becoming a judge. He has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and his JD degree from the University of Chicago Law School. After graduating from law school, he clerked for Chief Judge Robert McRae of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Tennessee and for Judge Gilbert Merritt on the Sixth Circuit. In addition to practicing in law firms in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., he has also served as the deputy, he also served as the deputy media, media director for Al Gore's first Senate campaign. John, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, John, and to Heritage for hosting this, uh, and to Ed Meese. It's always an honor to uh, hear you. You know, um, Ed talked about his speech to the ABA, but he really downplayed his role in this. And I, you know, I think for, for those of you that weren't even alive at that time, it's important to convey to you 
how different things were back then. I mean, if you, you can't even get them by looking in archived websites on the internet now, but if you go to the shelves in the libraries where you're studying law, you know, way back in the back uh, corners, covered with dust, will be some old constitutional law textbooks from the 1970s. And most of them didn't even have a copy of the Constitution in them anymore. It had become irrelevant because the thing was what the latest pronouncement of what constitutional law is from the Supreme Court, not what the text actually said. That's what mattered. Now, uh, this, this traces its roots originally to, uh, supposedly, to John Marshall's famous decision in Marbury versus Madison. But go back and look at that case. Uh, that case only leads to the modern understanding of judicial supremacy if you accept the proposition from Oliver Wendell Holmes that, yes, the Constitution is binding on all of us, but it only means what we say it means. Um, that difference is not there in John Marshall's original Marbury versus Madison. He was fighting the notion that the judge, the judiciary, the Supreme Court in particular, is supreme to the other branches of government if they strike down an act of the legislature or an act of the executive. And he said, no, it doesn't make us a supreme, but when I have to hold an act of the legislature, a mere agent, against the act of the people, the sovereign people, the principle, I have to give credit to the principle rather than to the agent. The essence of originalism is that basic foundational understanding that Marshall brought to bear in Marbury versus Madison. Now, um, there were the, the, the originalism enterprise has had uh, I- interesting twists and turns since it was first introduced. We've got different versions of it. We started off talking about original intent, um, and you know, and that was well, what did the founders intend? What was their subjective purpose behind this? And the notion of looking at James Madison's intent kind of r- really undercut what the originalism process was all about. It, may, it was not what Madison himself may have intended. It's what the words they put on the paper that was then subsequently ratified in the ratifying conventions that gave the Constitution the source of higher law authority. And that's tied to the understanding of right in the Declaration of Independence that the legitimacy of government turns on the consent of the governed. And so what is it they consented to is what gives the Constitution the higher authority that allows a court to strike down a law in violation of the Constitution. The law is subsidiary to the higher law of the Constitution. And what gives that higher law the authority is the people's ratification. And therefore, what what is has the authority is the understanding that the people had when they ratified it. So not original intent, but original public meaning originalism is where we end up. What were those words? What did they convey to those who had the responsibility and the authority to ratify the Constitution? Because that's what gives it the higher authority. Now, um, when, when we look at challenges to originalism, you have to ask what the alternative is. The modern living Constitution has much, uh, has much to say for it. We don't want to be bound by the dead hand of the past, particularly a past where the dead hand was written by European white property owners, sometimes even slave owners. And we, and why should we be bound by something they did 250 years ago? Uh, quite frankly, modern life is so vastly different from what they could have envisioned. We shouldn't be bound by that. But if that's, if that's the view, you have to ask, what's, what's the alternative? And the alternative I want to look at is through the guise of legitimacy of the enterprise, a constitutional interpretation. Because if you're not looking at the original public meaning that gave force, sovereign force to the authority of the higher law of the Constitution, what instead are you looking at? And, you know, there are lots of different, different things you could look at. You could look at, for example, um, the notion of consent, kind of a Hobbesian notion of consent. Well, we didn't really know what we were consenting to, except that some unelected court in the future was going to be the ultimate sovereign to decide all things for us. That's, that's kind of this Hobbesian notion of the ultimate sovereign. You get the, you get to choose the sovereign at one point, but then once that choice is made, you're done. The sovereign gets to run everything else. Um, not sure that's the founder's view of the understanding of consent. It's certainly not the one expressed in the Declaration of Independence. The next one is the Marbury versus Madison point. The constitutional text is superior to all because of this ratification process. 
But that doesn't handle a lot of the unenumerated rights questions that come before us in basic policy disputes now. It certainly doesn't answer the question of what legitimacy to unenumerated rights defined and enforced by judges we should have when those have no basis in a historical claim. Um, It's a little hard to give the legitimacy to the enterprise when what they're really doing is pretending to import new meaning into old texts that everybody acknowledges didn't didn't have the meaning that 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 the new meaning is brought into it. You could have an understanding of judicial interpretation apart from the original meaning of the Constitution that's based in some notion of natural law, which is a higher law even still than the Constitution. Aristotle, Cicero, Locke. Locke says at one point, the law of nature stands as an external rule to all men, legislators as well as others. But there are a couple of problems with that theory. Why is it that we would think judges get get it better than legislators? Um, Or you could have the Justice Scalia criticism of that. Um, The Constitution, even if we accepted the proposition that natural law might be binding on us, the Constitution doesn't assign that authority to the judges anyway. Moreover, uh, particularly because of the Holmesian success in his enterprise, modernly we've largely rejected the notion of natural law, or that is that there are certain immutable truths that exist outside of the positive law. So this doesn't really work as a theory on why unelected judges get to decide what they want and claim it's constitutionalism. The fourth is a kind of an amalgam of those, those uh, second and third. Some constitutional text privileges, immunities clause, the Republican guarantee clause, maybe due process, properly understood may well codify some of the principles of the natural law as articulated in the Declaration of Independence. This is the famous dispute on the conservative side of the court between Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, for example. But you still run into that hurdle if we've got largely a judiciary or modernity that rejects the national law why should the judges get to claim the mantle of natural law as higher law when they don't even under when they reject the principles there's another theory that well there are open ended clauses in the constitution like the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the 8th amendment or the ideas of due process or equal protection that um that were intended by the drafters and ratifiers of the constitution as an original matter to have the courts in the future applying evolving standards of decency, um, and they would they would fill out the meaning of those broad clauses. Uh, that's a that that's somewhat plausible. This is a, what I call the living constitution originalism. Um, I mean, you can work that theory out. It's just there's no evidence for it at, at the time of the founding that that's what they intended. There's also what I call the Felix Frankfurter theory of constitutional interpretation. Felix Frankfurter's most famous for advocating for the administrative state. All of this um, this constitutional constraints on government get in the way of the best and brightest doing things that, you know, that better for us. And so we ought to have these independent experts and administrative agencies kind of pass all the regulations to rule of our lives, even without any consent of the governed or actual statutes from Congress. We'll take that Felix Frankfurter theory for the administrative state and apply it to constitutional interpretation in the judiciary. Um, the post-New Deal courts would decide major policy disputes as though they had a monopoly on insight into wisdom. Um, but where is the legitimacy in that enterprise? If that's what we're doing, if we're no longer stuck with the text that, uh, that was ratified, the ratification process gave it the higher source of authority, what's the claim of legitimacy for unelected judges taking us in new directions that the text doesn't support? Um, one claim might be, well, uh, trends of popular opinion, and you'll see this reflected in some of the Supreme Court's decisions where they'll cite public opinion polls. Um, there's a little bit of a problem with that theory, though. Um, if it's true that that's the trend of popular opinion, wouldn't the legislature, which is directly accountable to public opinion at the next election, eventually change the rule? Uh, why would we need the courts to substitute their judgment on what public opinion is or might become soon for what the legislature would do? The legislature is, after all, elected and more directly accountable to public opinion. Worse, the Supreme Court really doesn't believe that as their theory. In the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they notoriously said, 
you know, we, we need to be independent even to withstand public opinion, even when our decision was wrong. Um, so it's really not about public opinion, uh, giving them legitimacy. What they really mean, I think, by that is trends of modern enlightened public opinion as, as, as they see. And you see this in a couple of very famous cases. Um, Roper versus Simmons dealing with the juvenile death penalty. There's a, there's a listing of all of the states that continue to apply the death penalty to 17 year olds. And, and it's just dripping with, with arrogance. Well, these are all the flyover states, or the southern states. We really don't have to, they're not the enlightened states of the northeast corridor. They don't, they don't even know what the, the Acela Express is down there in those states. Um, you know, the same type of thing in the anti-sodomy case of Lawrence versus Texas. There's a completely gratuitous listing of all the states that still had those statutes, the purpose of which was to show that these are kind of the backward states and enlightened opinion lets us move beyond that. And the, these are, even though they're 20 or 40 or 50, 20 or 30 of these states, 40% of the total or something, they're really outliers so far out there that we ought not to give recognition to that version of public opinion. That's a very odd notion of consent that plays out in this. All of these theories, though, at, at bottom, raise the question, what's the legitimacy for the enterprise of judicial review if it's not to uphold the higher law of a constitution that we knew because of its ratification by the ultimate sovereign, the people? And if we're going to not stick with the text of the constitution as that higher authority, why should we let the unelected judiciary, unaccountable to the ultimate sovereign, be the ones that make those basic policy judgments, rather than, at the very least, the elected legislature, if we're going to throw off the Constitution as constraints on that? So the idea of originalism is both an idea to get back to where the sovereign authority lies, the thing that gave the Constitution its higher purpose, its higher authority. Uh, and without that, the last people we would ask to be the ultimate arbiter of all questions policy judgment would be the least accountable branch of government. And yet that's where we are, and that's why the fight that Mr. Meese launched with Reagan, we launched in our Constitutional Jurisprudence Center, we call it our Reagan Jurisprudence Award. Anybody that has made in their lifetime uh, a significant contribution to the recovery of constitutionalism, and one of our first recipients was Ed Meese. And thanks very much, Mr. Meese. I want to begin with a very heartfelt thanks for allowing me to come here and giving me 10 minutes uh, to lose. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I could have told you I could lose in less than 10 minutes. Um, but I also want to take the opportunity um, to acknowledge just what extraordinary institution I think the Heritage Foundation is, what an extraordinary enterprise that it's launched and trying to provide further training for all of you to be excellent law clerks. Um, and the extraordinary achievements of many people that really provide the shoulders in which all the rest of us sort of now are able to stand. They include not just General Meese, um, an extraordinary transformation that he helped launch for the federal judiciary, but others. And I, I hope you'll allow me a moment or two to use up my remaining seven minutes. Um, <laughs> to acknowledge a couple of these. Um, uh, when I first became a law professor, um, it, it became a, quite a stunning bit of news to one of my former professors, um, a guy named Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, and I had the opportunity to learn constitutional law from him, not just in class, but the unusual opportunity to learn it over the 30, next 30 years that I was teaching constitutional law, which was really quite unusual. Um, and I had the incredible honor of being able to put on, we did not know it at the time, one of his last public functions at the Union League in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And as Justice Scalia left, um, he saw me and he usually would have a chance to sort of have very, sometimes long, sometimes very brief conversations, as long as I understood who was going to have the last word. Um, <laughs> and he said, you know, so Professor Gerhardt, you know, how am I doing? And I said, well, for Justice Scalia, I'm just sorry we don't have enough time to talk about that. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to talk about that. Um, but I want to come back to Justice Scalia in a moment because I think um, there are things that he said and did which can help uh, enrich our understanding of original originalism. And particularly the hard work 
the judges perform. I think um, I'm going to have to confess to you at the outset, I may not be, be the best foil for John because I'm not so sure where I stand in this debate. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, legitimacy, of course, that original meaning brings to the task uh, uh, of constitutional interpreta interpretation. Um, where I'm going to land is somewhere more pragmatic, which basically tags me as a dinosaur. That is to say, I'm the last dying moderate, somebody who stands somewhere in the middle, which basically means everybody hates me, um, <laughs> and nobody disagrees with me, um, and yet um, I, I'm still standing. Um, there are a lot of issues that come up when we talk about originalism, and I just want to run through them very fast for the sake of argumentation. Uh, our debate, I should point out, is to some extent so artificial that it may not capture very well what goes on in the real world. Uh, originalism ought to matter not just to judges, but of course to others that engage in constitutional interpretation, to those who work in the executive branch, those who work in the legislature. It isn't just something that ought to matter in one realm. And I'd like to think my own work in impeachment is grounded a great deal in excavating original meaning. Um, and that leads me to one of the first things to think about. And that is the fact that the United States Constitution says not a word about originalism. So we have to think about where do we look to find it? And more, just as important, where do we look to ensure its legitimacy or to demonstrate its legitimacy? If it's not in the text of the Constitution, which ought to be our abiding guide, where do we look for it? And what are we missing when we look beyond the text of the Constitution to original meaning? The person that taught me that was Justice Scalia. Think about the following. You know this. In statutory construction, it was Justice Scalia who told us what's the best expression of what the framers and ratifiers agreed on. Excuse me, in statutory construction, what's the best expression of the legislature's intent? It's the words they use in the actual law they enacted. Well, when we think about the Constitution, what's the best expression of the intent of the framers and the ratifiers? And of course, the answer is the Constitution itself, including the amendments. And so if it says nothing about originalism, we have to ask ourselves the basic question. Why, doesn't get, they, why didn't they give us a handbook? Why didn't they give us an annotation of the Constitution that sent, said to us, basically, here's how to do it? In fact, just the opposite. They gave us broad language, which seems at odds with an effort to nail it down and then discard it for the sake of something we have to construct or reconstruct in a form that it never existed in previously. That's the challenge that originalism poses for us. Are we willing to cast aside that text Say, for example, equal protection clause only means no discrimination on the basis of race. Cast aside the equal protection clause and the language chosen for the sake of something we've just reconstructed out of whole cloth. So we begin with a tension, a tension between the text, the choices made in the text, and the choices not made and not reflected in the text. The next challenge that's posed to originalism is, of course, what do we mean by it? There are numerous forms of originalism. When General Meese first talked about it in that historic speech about originalism, I believe the understanding that he expressed there was originalism as something that would justify deference from courts. Deference from courts as they related to legislatures and, for that matter, executive officials. But the originalism we think of today may not be about deference. It may be about something quite different. Which is the right originalism? Which original meaning is the one we need to settle on to determine legitimacy? That, too, is a challenge for originalism. Third, we have a problem in that originalism itself didn't begin, as almost everybody here concedes, with the founding. We first really see it in General Meese's speech and later in the 70s and 80s. And it begins to um, be of service to us, largely for political reasons. Original meaning, or original public meaning, whatever the term we want to use to describe it as of today, serves a political purpose. One principal purpose, I have to confess, is to get you confirmed. 
if we say the right things, then maybe we can become, you know, we can get through the confirmation process. But then we run into the issue or the challenge of what about the original meaning we might follow in practice or adjudication or in some other setting. Here we have to confront the realities of the real world, which is original meaning rarely presents itself as the only choice in any real setting or any hard situation. And constitutional law, at least in adjudication, is about hard cases. It's not about the easy cases. And in hard cases, one of the problems we've got is there may not be original meaning, if we want to be honest about it. What do we do in those circumstances? What do we do in circumstances in which precedent has become so entrenched and so established that it may be difficult, if not impossible, to eradicate? Think of the First Amendment, for example, which is largely based on doctrine, not on original public meaning, but on other things. What do we do about that? And we'll come to that issue as well later. But the political service to which original meaning is put cannot be ignored. It serves as a cover. It serves as a shelter. It serves as a filter. It serves as something that serves as some other end. And we've got to be honest about what those ends may be. And next, we come to some other challenges. And I just want to list these very briefly because I'm pretty sure my time is already over. Um, one of the things that I often have to think about when I consider original meaning is the possible violence it may well do to the text itself. That is to say, it displaces the text. I've mentioned that before. It doesn't just displace the text. It displaces structure, too, which is a source of original meaning, as, a source of constitutional meaning as well. And yet, recourse to it is attempted to fix the meaning in such a particular way that we can't go back to that broader text, the broader language the framers and the ratifiers adopted. The structure itself gives rise to inferences, which may be helpful for us to understand the Constitution itself. Original meaning, actually, in some ways, is in tension with all that. It seeks to displace these other sources. My suggestion is perhaps maybe it needs to be coordinated with them rather than displace them. But this debate sets up originalism in such a way that it's an either-or um, uh, request that's being made of us, rather than perhaps thinking how we can coordinate all these different things together, which may be the hard work of judges, hard work of presidents and those who advise them, and the hard work of people in Congress as well. Originalism does more than just violence to the text and the structural, uh, structure of the Constitution. It may actually do violence to original meaning itself. In other words, as we look to original meaning, we might want to ask, what does original meaning say about original meaning? Where are the framers unified on the question of where people should look, where judges should look, where others should look, when they seek to determine the meaning of the Constitution? As you well know, James Madison said basically, and I'm paraphrasing, all these questions, all these contested questions come down to liquidations, meaning practice over time. We can't ignore that either. The framers themselves were not unified, uh, to say the least, in suggesting we should replace their text with some fabricated form of original meaning that we've developed in the year 2019 instead of the harder work of excavating the structure and other things that may enlighten the Constitution. A couple more things are, that are challenges. Um, one of the difficulties of not having a fixed understanding of original meaning itself is that original meaning might well come to mean pretty much the same thing as the living constitution. And we can see this happen as well. Over the last 30 years, more and more scholars, brighter and brighter scholars, have found all sorts of ways to redefine originalism in such a way that now there is a concept out there, as you know, called a living, living originalism. I have no idea what that means. Um, I certainly would think if I were a judge if, uh, or in any other position of authority, I wouldn't want to make recourse to something that seemed to be an oxymoron at best. Um, instead, I would look to those hardcore materials, those materials from which law itself can be found and from which it emerges. Last but not least, as we engage with the strong temptation to rid ourselves of hard choices, which lead to the preference, okay, let's adopt something like original meaning. As we face that temptation, 
We also have to recognize, as everybody here knows, that embracing original meaning in some configuration might well lead to absurd results. And I'll leave you with two, just two, because I'm in negative time at this point. Um, there is, of course, the quandary of Brown versus Board education. That's the quandary posed to everybody uh, who professes to be just an originalist. How do you square that historic landmark decision and the transformation society it helped produce? How do you square all that with originalism? When Alexander Bickel was a law clerk on the Supreme Court and tasked by the Chief Justice of the United States to figure out how do we square the 14th Amendment with the fact that Congress, the Congress that fashioned it was also maintaining segregated school, schools, how do we do that? And Bickel's answer, as the great constitutional scholar he became and really was, happened to be, we, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. That's what Bickel said. And that is, I think, intellectual honesty. To suggest we do know the answer, I think risks the final, uh, really raises the final problem here. So where I'm going to come down, as the dying moderate that I happen to be, is with the spirit that Learned Hand talked about in that great speech about the spirit of liberty, saying it's the spirit that's not sure it's right. I think as judges and others who are tasked with, it, with trying to figure out what the Constitution means, humility requires that we look to wherever we can find that will help provide some, yes, John's right, some legitimate basis for constitutional interpretation, but it may not just be in what we reconstruct as the original meaning in a form that we can never really be sure is right. So in a moment, uh, we have about a little over 15 minutes left. And I, I really want to spend the bulk of our time uh, getting to your questions. I, I guess I would, uh, before we do that, ask uh, Michael a couple of questions. One, I, I would take issue with your statement that uh, the concept of originalism sprung up in the mid-1980s from the mouth of Ed Meese. I, I, I think that originalism was practiced quite a bit before then and sort of died in the progressive era, but, but setting aside my one editorial comment, I guess I don't understand completely your, or your comment about how original meaning would somehow destroy the text or structure of the Constitution. I, mean, I, I, I understand your point that precedent can certainly surpass original meaning, whether it should or not is a different story. I understand your point that there may not have been agreement among the framers about why they were in support or opposed to a particular clause. And, and there may not have been a common understanding about whether they should refer to Locke or you know, Blackstone or Edward Koch. But the one thing that they all had in common, as did the people in the state conventions that ratified the Constitution, they all had a common understanding about what the words in the text meant at that time. So I guess I don't understand your statement about how that trying to divine that original meaning undercuts the text and structure of the Constitution. If you explain that a little bit more, I'd appreciate it. Um, sure. So let me let me also just provide a clarification. I, I don't think I wasn't trying to suggest that somehow the the whole notion of originalism began with General Meese, but I do think, as I suggested. And, and believe it was largely absent from Supreme Court opinions uh, from most of constitutional history up until relatively recently. The, we all know the most flagrant, obvious use of it in the 19th century was in the horrific decision in Dred Scott. Now, one thing we could argue, of course, is maybe it was misapplied there, misunderstood. Fair enough. But it doesn't make – John Marshall doesn't use it in a, in a form that we would recognize it today. Um, Marshall basically thought, and I'll move to the second thing, Marshall thought, let's look to that text and the structure, which will give us some insight into what the framers were trying to do when they established the Constitution, and more particularly what the ratifiers agreed to. Um, what I'm suggesting is that one, the, the quest for original public meaning can be undertaken and is often undertaken in a way that is seeking to fix the meaning in such a way that then precludes us from looking to other sources for constitutional enlightenment, such as structure. That, in my mind, is a tension. And I'm, what I suggested as well was maybe a more, uh, what I will suggest is a more responsible kind of a constitutional interpretation may seek to coordinate those rather than 
to uh, simply ignore that tension. Yeah, 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 let me add a slight gloss to this. One of the things, I mean, I, I really appreciated your, your kind of overall assessment. One of the things I want to take issue with, though, is that the Constitution doesn't say a word about originalism. It's not in the text. I don't think that's true. I think the very idea of a Constitution uh, necessarily implies an originalism. The, the reason Marshall sets out that the Constitution is higher to a statute and therefore we have the authority of judicial review to strike down a statute that violates the Constitution is because the Constitution is higher law. And it's higher law because it's ratified by the ultimate sovereign, the people. That's true because the people are the ultimate sovereign because we know that by the principles of natural law established in the Declaration, that the only legitimate government is grounded in consent. It's that ratification process that gives it the scope of higher law. So the very idea of a written constitution, it doesn't have to say, and we want you to apply this constitution as originally understood. That's inherent in the notion of what a written constitution is. Um, so, I, so I think the fact that it's not spelled out in the text, O-R-I-G-I-N-A, doesn't mean that it's not there it's there in the very idea. It's what the thing itself means. Um, and when you remove that, and I agree with you, we, we can't look at little snippets of it to find what's this word mean or what's that mean. You got to look at the whole con- structure as part of it. I mean, I agree with that. But, but, but once you understand what something means, that the power to regulate commerce among the states meant it's got to be commerce and it's got to be among the states. It doesn't mean I get to regulate the entire economy, even things that are wholly interstate. You know, that's that you, once you move away from what that original ratification purpose and, and clear meaning was, you're now in the land of either the legislature usurping their authorities or the judiciary usurping its authority and substituting something else for the thing that gave it its legitimacy in the first place. Um, I, I don't know whether this is a disagreement or not. I, but, but I would, uh, I, I guess, um, not, of course, put it quite the way you did. <laughs> you know, I, I think that um, the text is one thing. It is the embodiment. It is the reflection of that, whatever that original understanding may have been. Those are the words chosen. Those are the words ratified. Those are the words we live with. Um, I do think once we acknowledge that it doesn't necessarily follow, at least in my mind, that the fact that we have written constitution necessarily means we would look to one place, the so-called original public meaning, or whatever originalism may mean. That is to say, the meaning itself, originalism, is shifting. It's not the same. If you look at how people keep defining it over the last several decades, it keeps shifting. In the 1980s, it was an inquiry into, I think, framers' intentions. Now, it seems to be, at least in some camps, an inquiry into linguistic understanding of what people who lived at the time might have understood these words to mean in everyday parlance. Okay, well, which is it? The text, my point is the text can't tell us that. The text cannot answer that and doesn't answer that. Um, What is going to answer it is your political theory. Some political theory that you've got about how you want the world to look or how you think the Constitution should be or what it should be and so on. And you've just lifted that political theory somewhere from outside the text. That's my point. All right. So we have a little over 10 minutes left. And uh, let's get some questions from you. Over here. I'll start with... uh a question for Professor Eastman, which is uh, Professor Gerhardt made an interesting point about how, in some ways, originalism as it's shifting is starting to look like or, or is producing results that are perfectly acceptable within a living constitutionalist framework. Uh, and um, that's, I guess, it's pretty high level. But what are the specific problems uh, with this new originalism, you know, recognizing the, the issue with, with interpretation versus construction and what have you, and how does that call into question the, the whole enterprise? Yeah, so as Justice Kagan famously said, we are all originalists now. And, uh, uh, and, and, if, and if Kagan's an originalist and Scalia's an originalist uh, and, and you can get opposite outcomes, then the originalism enterprise doesn't do us much good. The question is, is one of them doing um, – Pretextual originalism and another, you know, and my, my, my case study for this is Justice Scalia's opinion in Texas versus Johnson, um, his opinion in a number of the criminal defense cases, which presumably came out with conclusions that were vis- differed vastly from what his policy views were. Um, and, uh, and that meant that there was an honesty in his originalism to take it wherever he thought it led. 
I, I happen to think some, like the Johnson versus United States, Johnson versus Texas case was, was wrong on originalism, but we can dif- dispute that. There's no question he didn't like the policy outcome, but he thought the First Amendment compelled it, and that's a pretty honest originalism in, in, to me. That's a flag-burning case. Yeah, the flag-burning case. So um, uh, the, 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 the broader question, though, uh, I, I do think there's, you know, kind of how do we move back after three-quarters of a century of not applying originalism. Um, I, I think the reason you don't see discussions of originalism back in the 19th century is because the understanding of constitutionalism was so profoundly embedded and agreed upon um, that it wouldn't occur to them to have this fight or dispute or discussion. It's only after you reject the governing authority of constitutionalism in Holmes and in the New Deal, that the need for a revived discussion about originalism comes back in place. But but I but there's another thing is how as we're undergoing the transition back toward originalism, um, it's a huge problem of precedent. Uh, one view is precedent. You know, we're not going to lightly overturn precedent when the courts themselves thought they had it right. Maybe they were closer in time. Maybe we ought to give some deference to that. The different thing to feel bound by precedent when the court itself didn't feel like it was bound by the Constitution anymore. Um, the Constitution is only whatever we say it is, and we think this is a better policy outcome, even if it completely distorts the meaning of the Commerce Clause or whatever that is. Do you overturn all of those precedents all of a sudden and throw off everything after 28 U.S. Code all the way up to 52, whatever we're up to now, overnight? And that would be pretty, you know, so, you know, part of it is the the the, the real-life consequences of how you get back toward understanding um, once, once you've accepted what the Constitution means, but you're so far away from it. How do you do that? Gradually, without really undercutting the rule of law, that's been that's been a fight between Thomas and not a fight, just a um, how do we how do we negotiate this transition if we're really going to succeed in this enterprise in a way that doesn't completely undermine the rule of law long term, and that's an important question, I think, as well. Um, well, I, I'll just offer a brief um, kind of reaction or response. Um, I guess you know John and I'll just have to have a little different understanding of what's happening in the 19th century and 20th century. But I'll just give you one example, McCulloch versus Maryland. Um, that's a case decided in the 19th century, uh, obviously in a great opinion, uh, landmark opinion from Chief Justice Marshall, but you're not going to find many originalists defending it. I'm not sure that's true. But all right. Well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I defend it. I <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> to what extent, if at all, do some of the terms and phrases in the, con- in the Constitution imply that you should look to the contemporary understanding? And by those sorts of terms, I mean terms like the ex post facto clause, the Bill of Attainder, establishment of religion, search and seizure, indictment, and the like. They seem to imply a certain understanding external to the document based on the history that led up to that point and what people understood those terms to mean because they don't get a definition. So is that either some evidence, no evidence, a great deal of evidence or whatever for the proposition that the document does implicitly require you to look to what those concepts meant when people were deciding whether they wanted to be governed by them? Well, so, you know, you, the, I mean, you, you kind of look backward on there. I thought you were going to look forward for a moment, which some of the other text, reasonable in the Fourth Amendment or most notoriously a cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment. Um, uh, so some of the living constitutionalists who have tried to tether their enterprise to originalism have said as a matter of original intent or original public meaning, whichever nuanced version you want on that, um, that some of those clauses were intended to be evolving, cruel and unusual. What what may have been usual then is unusual now. We don't exactly cut people's hands off for th- horse thieving these days. And if I if I if a judge were to impose such a sentence um, now, it would violate the Eighth Amendment. And so, did they intend to have an evolving standard to be answered by individual judges down the road? That's the that's the kind of uh, hardest case from our side. Uh, and you know, 
Um, I think Scalia's answer would be it's unlikely we're going to get a legislature to authorize such a punishment, we, you know, uh, so we don't have to confront that question. It's a nice theoretical problem. But looking back at it, I think you're right. Um, if we don't have the meaning of those clauses, which to us might be ambiguous or overly broad or grandiose, if we don't have some historical context for understanding what they meant to the people that ratified it, you've got two options. You either stick with that original historical understanding or you let the judges fill in that empty bottle of wine, you know, cask of wine with whatever they want. And I think that enterprise really undercuts the legitimacy of judicial judicial review. Can you add to that, Michael? Um, uh, sure. Um, well, I, it will not surprise you for me to say. Um, I, I just don't think it's as simple as John cast the choice at the end. You know, that it's either a choice of sort of following that original public meaning, presuming we know it, and and just doing whatever you feel like. I think the world ends up being a little more complicated than that. And let me go back to McCulloch versus Maryland to demonstrate that. Um, the 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 argument that Marshall's using to strike down the tax, the Maryland taxation of the National Bank in that case, is not based on original meaning. It's based on structure. That's a classic illustration of what we call representation reinforcement theory in that case. I won't go run through it. But it's not about original meaning. It's about, it's about another form of constitutional interpretation, which has been historically undertaken by the court throughout, pretty much from the beginning. So I just want to suggest that the choices that sometimes are raised are not quite as stark as either just following some original public meaning or doing whatever you feel like. I also just want to raise the question, because we're academics, what if it happens you, if you can't find out the original public meaning? What if that's not knowable? Um, which sometimes is the case. Where do you go then? I have a feeling that Justice Lee tomorrow may have something to say. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Fair <laughs> enough. have a, a separate a program on, uh, on the whether or not upholding the National Bank would back in McCullough versus Maryland days, uh, original meaning or not. Yes, over here, Luke. So I just want to follow up a little bit on what you just said, Professor Eastman, because uh, you said, uh, you know, maybe that the problem of like cruel and unusual thing, that it's a problem in theory, but uh, we're likely to see it. But it seems like that's punting something that we need to answer because this is a theory. So if you're defending a constitutional theory, we need to deal with theoretical problems. Um, and that's not to say it's not answerable, but I, I'm not sure that we can just punt it and still yeah. say we have a valid theory. Yeah, so I, look, uh, I think Justice Scalia's answer uh, is fairly straightforward. Was it cruel and unusual at the time the Constitution was ratified? And if cutting off your wrist for horse thieving was one of the allowable common uh, punishments for horse thieving, if a legislature today decided to reinstate that as a punishment, the Constitution wouldn't allow the courts to strike it down. I, I mean, I think I think that's the pure version of it. Um, I think you would also say, luckily, I don't have to face that question. Uh, uh, but see, he would say it wasn't considered cruel and unusual at the time. The fact that it's become unusual now doesn't mean we get to fill that modern understanding back in, because because and and this goes back to the question of legitimacy. We only get the question to the court if the legislature has passed such a statute. And, and the legislature passing such a statute, by definition, means there's popular support for it, more so than the popular support for the court's decision that would strike it down. The question of legitimacy, if we're going to throw out the original meaning of the Constitution, we'd be a lot better off just deferring to the majority because if we don't have a Constitution at all, they at least have the, the virtue of supposedly being accountable more directly to the people than the unelected judiciary. Unless you adopt some view that somehow – the training and the confirmation process that goes into picking justices um, makes them better equipped for imposing the Solomonic wisdom on all of us than anybody else. I'm, I tend not to go along with that view. At one point, Justice Scalia backed off to the, from that uh, with respect to the Eighth Amendment, referred to himself as a faint-hearted originalist, and then he took it back. Yeah, exactly. Now, the legislature it was notching of ears was the example that he used. Right. They want to pass notching of ears? Okay with me. In the back. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the, the give and take and the civil debate, of course, and fleshing out the sides. Well, just give us another five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, wait till the wait till the next cocktail hour, right? 
So I thought um, it's interesting. It seems to me that the, we still haven't resolved whether whether looking at structure is just a form of, of original meaning or the right way. And it, it doesn't seem to me to be as much of a, an obstacle if people who call themselves originalists disagree, if, if we're just trying to work out what we think we should be looking to. Um, but I, I guess the particular question I wanted to ask was for Professor Eastman about um, – you know, what do you make of the Brown uh, argument? You have the McConnell, the famous McConnell response. It, I don't hear as often, and I wonder if you have any disagreement with this, a, a, an acceptance of like, you know, arguably Lincoln acted unconstitutionally, um, contrary to the original meaning in some circumstances, maybe it was statesmanlike, maybe it was extra, extra legal and morally justified, and maybe that's what the Brown court did. Is there some, do you think that that's just wrong because McConnell is right or some other reason why that's a, a mistake as a matter of historical interpretation. Now you're going to force me to to be in the position of taking issue with some of my originalist friends. I'm, I'm, I'm from the school of thought that you can only stand, under, properly understand constitutional originalism if you understand the political theory of the Declaration. That comes out most clearly in some textual clauses. I referred to them earlier. Privileged immunities, Republican guarantee. There's a wonderful debate over the admission of Missouri in 1818 and 1819. They say Republican guarantee means consent of the governed. You cannot be you cannot be admitting a state um, that doesn't get the old presumption like like South Carolina would get. You can't be admitting a new state from a new territory that has slavery because that undermines consent and therefore violates the guarantee clause. That that political theory necessarily needs to be looked at to understand the actual meaning of those words. But there's also an unenumerated rights theory that, 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 that's my textualist answer. Scalia ought to join with me on that, right? Let's figure out what that thing meant. But there's unenumerated rights. My difficulty now is the unenumerated rights theory as the backdrop for proper understanding only works if you actually have a coherent view of natural law, which Holmes rejected for us all. And, and until that's recaptured, then, then you're, you're, and I think, why Scalia was such a positivist textualist rather than looking at these theories is you're left with Brennanism. You know, fill it in however I think is just or, – or Harry Pragerson who testified, I would follow my conscience rather than the law no matter what – you know, even if I, the law was clear. That seems to undermine the legitimacy of the enterprise. Um, and, and I go back to my, my earlier statement. If that's what they're doing, why would we elect the unelected nine do it rather than the majority we've sent to Congress? But if you but if you accept the proposition that what the majority can do whatever they want, then there's no such thing as a written constitution. There has to be judicial review, but the judicial review has to be constrained by the constitution itself. I agree with Michael. Not just the text. I don't take the word import or out of out of context. The structure helps inform what all of that means, right? And the the, the one issue I want to take this the, the the morphing of the language of original the originalism enterprise from original intent to original public meaning. I think just as as we started talking about these things, we realized that the thing that gave it that sovereign authority was the original public meaning. It wasn't Madison's unspoken intent. It was it was what the sovereign so it 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 more perfectly lined up with the theory behind originalism as we got more perfect in talking about it. Um, just two quick things. I mean, that nonetheless, originalism has yet to have a fixed meaning because you know we, we may well evolve into a different understanding um, based on whatever else we learn about linguistics and what other other fields we bring into the mix here. Um, the The challenge I want to leave you with, however, um, is to think about something like the Ninth Amendment. Um, one of the people I also um, think of dearly as one of my law professors and teachers was Phil Curlin, who was an immensely respected conservative constitutional scholar for, um, in the 70s and 80s. And he once referred to the Ninth Amendment as a blank check written on an account without funds, which is just a fabulous articulation. Better than um, Borg's inkblot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, much better. Um, you're, you're left in pretty much the same place, but – but the reason why I like Curlin's better is because once we realize that he's probably right about that, we still have, the, have to look at that check. We still have to look at that text. We are, we are bound by the text, right? We are bound to follow every jot and tickle of it, whatever, all of it, 
And we shouldn't be reading out of existence something simply because we can't figure out what did the people who wrote that language understand it, or what did you know? What were the conversations in the street about the Ninth Amendment? I don't know what they were, and I don't know that I would follow them. But in any event, um, but we're, we're we've got the Ninth Amendment, so we can try and figure out what the plain meaning would be. That's what Marshall oftentimes tried to you know use as a thing to follow, um, and that's the challenge of constitutional interpretation. That's the one that. We all that's the challenge we all face. Yeah, I, I think it's a simpler answer to that than uh, the I mean, look, uh, Madison and Hamilton both objected to having a Bill of Rights. This was raised during the debates. I mean, there are some some of these fights that we had and one side won. Uh, they objected to having a Bill of Rights because the whole theory of the Constitution is the national government only got to exercise the limited powers delegated to it. And their fear of having a Bill of Rights that we would start treating the national government as an ultimate sovereign rather than the people as sovereign. And they could do whatever they wanted except what we carved out from them, like, you know, like the, the, um, uh, the aristocracy carved out from, from, from King John and Magna Carta, right? And, and they eventually came around to realizing that people wanted to see that Bill of Rights, but Madison went out of his way to not curtail the understanding that the Constitution itself was limited in its powers. And the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment were designed so that the false, um, implication of having a Bill of Rights wouldn't take effect. I don't think it did any more than that. Uh, and, you know, and understanding that, that's something that we can easily recover by looking at the historical record. So I know that we could go on for another hour with, with all of your questions, but Michael has a flight. To come. I'm sorry. Second cocktail hour, back in the top <laughs> <laughs> John, I'm so sorry. Michael, no, this is great. It is great to see you. Uh, so you, you work for the Bond Rock, I know I have a Bond Rock.